Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Pensacola, Florida, it's time for Pensacola Business Radio. Now, here are your Business Radio X hosts. This is Colleen Edwards-Chesley, and you are listening to Women in Leadership, the show brought to you by Powerful Women of the Gulf Coast and sponsored by Pensacola Business Radio. We are super excited to be here today. I've got three wonderful guests in the studio today. Before we get to introducing them, I want to talk a little bit about the organization. So my name is Colleen Edwards-Chesley. I am the founding director of Powerful Women of the Gulf Coast, and we are an organic nonprofit organization that started right here in Pensacola, Florida. There's a great story of how we started. So I invite you to check out our website and read the story. But we are super excited to be growing and expanding at this point. Actually, last month, we just changed our board structure. We went from three board members to a full board now of 16 board members. And we've got a strategic plan in place and a budget in place to really take off and do some amazing things in this next coming year. So I hope you join us on the, on the journey. Our mission is to promote, advance, and improve women in business. And we do that in a number of different ways. One of the ways we do that is our monthly networking meetings. So if you're in the area in Pensacola and you want to come by and visit with us and check out what we do, we'd invite you to come to those networking meetings. We also meet in Gulf Breeze as well. And you can see all of our networking events on our Facebook page, Powerful Women of the Gulf Coast. If you want to check out our website, please do that as well. PowerfulWomenGulfCoast.com is our website. And you can also see some of the other programs that we get involved in. One of them that I'm super excited about is our Power Up classes. These are our 12-week leadership classes that we teach to men and women to help build skills in a number of different business areas. We are about two-thirds of the way through the program right now. So this past week, we did a class on networking, and we talked about what do you do at an actual networking event. So today, I want to share with you just a few tips that we talked about during networking. So when you're at a networking event, obviously, what you say is very important, but what's more important is the way you present yourself. That has a lot to do with body language. So we talked about some different things that you can do to help put yourself in the best in the best mindset as far as good body language when networking. One thing we advocate is to do power stances. I don't know if any of of you ladies have tried that, but there's a great TED Talk out there by Amy Cuddy about power stances. So it's all about just re-energizing your body and positioning yourself in in the best frame of mind to be functional and to be efficient with your networking. Another thing that's really great with networking is to kind of bend your knees when you're standing up and to lean in slightly. That indicates interest. When you're talking to somebody else, if you're leaning forward, you're engaging in that conversation. And bending your knees is a tip I learned long time ago back from Toastmasters. Bending your knees actually helps reduce some of the tension in your body and it allows the nervous energy to escape down through the floor. If you keep your knees locked, you end up bringing that negative energy up into the upper part of your body, it tends to make you sweat more, it tends to make your adrenaline jump faster, and it tends to come out in a nervous type of energy because that energy doesn't have anywhere to go but physically up into your face and out your mouth. So if you're ever nervous networking, try bending your knees slightly when you're standing. Another tip that we talked about is breathe like a baby with your belly. 
So I'm sure you ladies have all seen that that you can breathe differently with your with your stomach muscles to where your your when you're breathing your belly button kind of pooches out a little bit and then sucks back to your spine. That is another way to reduce nervous energy as well. A lot of times when we're nervous, we breathe a lot through our lungs, which is that upper energy, that upper body um, building of that nervous energy. So the more you do that, the more nervous it's going to make you. So if you tend to get nervous, try switching and doing the the breathing that I learned back in yoga which is that body or that belly type of breathing another one that we talked about in the class this week was where to wear your name tag and a lot of people um, it's interesting to see that a lot of people haven't heard this before but actually with your name tag it should always be on the right side of your body so and the reason for that is as you're shaking hands you extend your right hand forward and a lot of times that brings your right shoulder forward as well so if somebody's trying to see your name it's going to bring your name closer to them and they naturally watch their eyes go up your arm and over to your name tag if you wear your name tag on the left hand side and if you're like me me and when you step forward you step with your right foot when you're reaching to, to shake somebody's hand then a lot of times that can turn your name tag slightly backwards so that they really can't physically see your name tag as well so those are just some of the tips that we talked about in this week's power up class if you want to join us like i said we are about two-thirds through the program but we can bring on some new attendees and we would love to see you take uh, take advantage of these classes Check out our website for more information about Power Up. Again, our website is PowerfulWomenGulfCoast.com or our Facebook page is Powerful Women of the Gulf Coast. The other thing I want to mention today is we are super excited that we have uh, we have officially booked our keynote speaker for this year's conference. So our conference will be on Wednesday, October 17th and Thursday, October 18th, right here in Pensacola, Florida. And our keynote speaker is going to be Liz Jaswick. Liz is amazing. She is from the Chicago area. She was down here last year and she was actually the keynote at the EntreCon conference last year. So she's going to talk a lot about women and leadership. She has had a very successful career in the healthcare industry. And so she's going to come back and teach us some skills that are important for women in business. So we're very excited to announce Liz Jaswick as our keynote speaker for the upcoming conference. And we hope you'll you'll get excited as well and, and look for more information coming out about our conference as well. So now we're going to get into our, our studio audience today. And I have some amazing guests in the, in the studio with us today. And the very first one I'm going to introduce is Joan Irby. Welcome, Joan. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. How are you doing today? I'm great. Good, good. I am so happy you're here. Uh, Joan is actually with, she's a recruiter, recruitment coordinator for Guardian Ad Litem. But this was not a career that, that you've had your entire life. You've done a number of different things. So I'm going to take a moment and just talk a little bit about her bio. She is an Air Force brat from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. She went to the University of Kentucky, and they're a go blue state, right? Mm -hmm. There you go. Go blue. Go blue. Business owner in Atlanta. She moved to the Navarre and Gulf Breeze area to raise her three kids, and she's been here for the last 16 years and been in a real estate career. Somebody came to your church six years ago and talked about Guardian Ad Litem, and it caused you to start volunteering. 
that must have been an amazing message. It really was. And um, up to that point, I was living in a bubble, like most of my friends out there. Um, Had no idea about all the children that were everywhere. You know, when I got my first case, he came to the church, told me, you know, with a couple of visits a month, you could make a difference in this child's life. Even though I had three kids, a very active career, um, I said, I can do that. And from that point, my bubble was busted and my eyes were open because the first case I got, I lived in Hidden Creek and my first case was two streets behind my house. So totally enlightening to all all that's out there and um, the issues that these children face. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you were so amazed with the program. You not only started volunteering, but once you realized your passion and your dedication to this cause that was literally in your backyard, then you became actually their recruitment coordinator. Right, right. I was I started volunteering in 2010. And um, after about two years, I was just bringing so many of my friends into the program. And they came to me and they're like, I know you're a realtor, but would you be interested in maybe taking this job on? And it really was an answer to prayer because I wanted to do more. And I realized when that door opened, I was replicating myself by getting more people involved that could help more kids. Um, And currently, I mean, we have 1,600 kids in the First Circuit, which is our four counties, Escambia, Santa Rosa, Oakloos, and Walton. And what we do as a program is instead of them just having that social worker and that attorney representing them through the dependency system, we actually use volunteers. So the reason I get out in the community, the reason that I basically breathe anymore is to make sure that people know that they can come in and help these kids. Just the ordinary person can come in and make a difference in these children's lives. Absolutely. And that's what I want to talk about, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that are just like you, Joan, that had been, you know, not necessarily living in a bubble, but but dedicated to a professional career and not realizing that there are wonderful programs like Guardian Ad Litem. So tell us a little bit more about the program and what involvement Guardian Ad Litem has in the entire process. Right, right. So what happens is once the abuse hotline is called, which we're all mandatory reporters, so the 896 abuse, that line is called um, and the child protection team comes out and Stacey will talk about this a little more. Um, at that point, there's a shelter hearing done at the courthouse with a judge, and these children are put into what's called the dependency court system. So of no fault of their own, they are now in this traumatic system, the court system. And I don't know about y'all, but I've had to go to court one time for a speeding ticket. I had a lead foot. And court is intimidating. So to think that Very a seven-year-old much. is coming into this process by themselves. And that's why guardian ad litem, I mean, it makes so much sense. Even before I worked for the program, I realized that instead of a social worker having 50 to 80 kids on a caseload, this one volunteer is only worried about this one child and or this one family of children and their issues in this. So it's a great program. Um, we do the training. We are we already have you assigned to a social worker and attorney. So it's basically the basic overall of it because we don't expect you to be a social worker. We don't expect you to be an attorney. We just expect you to be a caring adult that can kind of not have a dog in the fight, but advocate for this child and be the voice for this child in this system. Absolutely. Is it literally you sitting in the courtroom, like holding the child's hand and just being a comfort? Is it more of behind the scenes to get the child ready? Tell us. It can be that. And what happens is once you are assigned this child, you have a court order. So you can talk to teachers, you can talk to therapists, you can go to doctor's appointments. Um, You know, most of our children at this 
this point because the governor has us on all out-of-home cases first. The kids are in foster care. They could be in a group home. They actually could be in Curry House or a facility like that. Um, and, and the volunteers basically just building the relationship. Now, I have lots of people that work nine to five that wouldn't be able to come to court. The mm-hmm. biggest thing is visiting that child on a monthly basis, advocating for their needs through this report that you're going to write after you meet with the child, and then coordinating with your attorney and your social worker to make sure that those needs are made known to the court. Now, can you go to court? We love for our volunteers to go to court. And we're kind of um, mixed on the spectrum with kids coming to court or not coming to court. We want to keep them in the process. We want to keep a little kid's face in front of that judge, but we also don't want our foster kids to miss out on school because unfortunately there's a lot of things, a lot of retention with foster kids where they're missing a lot of school anyway just because of their life issues. Sure. For them to come sit a whole half day in court just to be told, okay, we're going to come back in five months. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not always the best use of their times. Now, we do schedule where they go in and talk in judges' chambers to the judge directly. And, you know, our volunteers, we encourage them to go with them to that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really as much as you can do. Because when I started this, I still had three kids very active, you know. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have quite as much time as I do now that my kids are grown, even because I still get to volunteer, which is awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so somebody can do this that doesn't have a legal background. Somebody can do this that doesn't have a child social work or a child care background, what skills should they have in order to to be an advocate for guardian ad litem? Well, and this is kind of funny because basically over 21, a clean criminal background, which is very, very important because this is a litigious activity that we're doing. We're in the court system, so we need clean criminal backgrounds and you're working with children. And then just a heart for kids. I mean, just that commitment to be that consistent person. Unfortunately, you know, case managers change and they're very busy. Everybody in the system changes on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So this volunteer is that consistent person month after month. And this child knows they have a safe person in their life. I was going to ask that too. Do the children tend to disclose information to the guardian ad litem representative more than they would to, you know, the the case workers and the people that they perceive as, as maybe not as involved in their personal life? Well, and and it depends because, you know, kids are kids. And and unfortunately, you know, we have, if if a baby tests positive to drugs, we get them from one day old until extended foster care is 21. So it really just depends on the child. But if you've ever spent much time with a child, they'll tell you all their business. Fortunately and unfortunately, you know, so it's just basically being consistent because a lot of these kids don't have that in their life and they have to build some trust up. You know, Mm -hmm. some of them, the first visit you'll go and they'll spill their whole life story, you know, Mm -hmm. and it depends on the age, but you want them to feel comfortable with you to build that relationship. We're not pressuring. We're not therapists. We're not investigators. We're basically just there to know you have somebody on your side being your voice. Right. Absolutely. I think that is so rewarding. What are some of the success stories that have come through the program? Um, Well, I'll tell you just um, one of my personal, well, two of my personal ones. Okay, so the first one, um, like I said, I had three kids. They were all at middle school, high school. So I wanted babies when I first started volunteering. Mm -hmm. But um, they called me one day. Um, My kids were in Navarra High School, and they were like, Joan, I know you didn't want a high schooler, but we have a girl that's considered a couch surfer at Navarra High School that we've now... um, figured out she does not have a guardian she's trying to fill out a FAFSA if you've never done that that's how you get into college now and get financial aid Mm -hmm. but basically we've come to the stumbling block that she can't fill it out because she doesn't have parent information so because she didn't have an address I actually went to the school to um, meet her at the counselor's office we had a discussion and basically after the hurricanes and stuff 
her mom had left because of the stress and then her dad went offshore to work and she basically just ended up staying on people's couches and now this is not our typical foster child she was very resilient um and when I went in to meet her, I actually knew the girl and she had been tutoring my daughter oh, wow. um, in math, which is kind of um, another one of those aha, bust your bubble. I had no idea. But seriously, when you're not looking through those eyes, now I'm almost too much looking through those eyes. But if you're not looking through those eyes, you don't suspect that. Right. You think everybody's got a house. You think everybody has parents, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely, because I'm sure um, she was dressed. Oh, she was well. fine. The only, the clue was, and I would have picked on, she ate at my house. Teenage girls, she was eating with my boys. It'd be wow. like, I'd cook, you know, or whatever. I'd uh-huh. want something to eat. And she'd be like, yeah, you know, and my, you know how teenage girls are. Sometimes they're real. I'm not going to eat around people I don't know. Exactly. I'm not going to eat much. You no know, finicky. That girl would eat. So that should have been a sign, but I didn't know to look for that, no. you know. The good thing was, so she ended up going to college. She went to UWF. Um, she called me when she was transitioning because I only had her for a short period because she was about to age out. She stayed in extended foster care so she could go to college because she gets her college paid for. She got a living stipend. And when she went into the master's program, she called me and was like, "Miss Joan, how do you get electricity? And I'm like, good question. Because what we don't realize is these kids, you need your family forever. Absolutely. I'm older than (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you know I still talk to my mom every day so it's not like when you get 16 or 17 even though your personal kids might not think they need you anymore you need your families forever so yeah it was a great story support system of some kind so that's what I'm getting out of this is guardian lidolitum just really gives that extra ounce of support for the child right somebody that's not doesn't have any other vested interest other than supporting that child exactly and our only interest is the child's best interest what can some sometimes be at at odds with other agencies that's the family's best interest and you know we're looking just from the child's perspective that's really cool because like you said there are there are technically I think there's three sides of the story there's the parent side there's the prosecuting prosecution side and then there's that child right you know which is a different perspective and so that's really cool that that guardian ad litem helps support the children in that way yeah and that's the thing people just don't realize that you can volunteer right you know and that's the biggest thing is getting the word out so if somebody has an opportunity and they want to volunteer but maybe they're only going to be here for a couple months is guardian ad litem a program they should look at or is it more somebody that could be that consistent we look for that year commitment so we would like for you to commit to a year um so you know that's what the governor has us and you know when a kid comes into the dependency court system unless they're in early childhood court under two we want them to be in some kind of permanent stable um family setting within a year so that's we ask for that year commitment good good and that's good to know and we'll talk a little bit more too with the gulf coast kids house that's here as well they've done a great job with shortening the amount of time it takes for prosecution to to happen or for the court you know, the case to be seen through the whole process. So because they've, we've shortened that time frame in a year, would somebody volunteering see more than one child? Or does that typically just restrict that to that one case that's going to be going through the system? It really just depends on your time. I mean, we don't want to overburden you and we don't want you to burn out. They say that if a volunteer, I think the statistic is if they, if they stay 12 months, they'll stay 36 months. The whole thing is we want you long term. We have volunteers that We've been in the state of Florida for 38 years, not necessarily here, mm-hmm. but we've had volunteers that have been volunteers for 20 years. The thing is, it's it's not always easy. And that's mm-hmm. one thing, you know, um, 
some people might not can do this, but my whole thing when I go out to speak and present is everybody can do something. Yeah. And like you're saying, with if you don't have a year, that's okay. We have a, a trafficking task force that we have lots of events going on, and we're trying to get the word out about our kids being trafficked um, in this area. So that's a whole nother thing. But there's there's something everybody can do. I was going to say there's an opportunity for anybody as short or as a long time as they want to do. Well, that. we have a, a, a casserole ministry for foster families. Wow. So basically, you know, if if um, it's it's the lady um, in I can't think Sarah Ellis. Um, up in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Up in, in Santa Rosa County. In I was going to say Molino, J yeah. area. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, runs, she has um, started this. My father's, um, my father's arrow. arrow. Yeah. Yes. And she started this with basically foster families because they're so overwhelmed, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, you know what? And if you don't even want to get in the, involved in the system, help a single mom. I mean, Absolutely. seriously, everybody can do something. Absolutely. That's amazing. I will share with you. I got um, picked. For, I got I, I, I seem to be in the system for jury duty all the time. I think I'm an opinionated and they like people that are opinionated. So when I go in there, you know, I'm honest. And, and I got picked this last I don't know, two months ago, and I had to serve on a jury trial. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed. It was nothing to do with child abuse because that is a hard thing for me. But even just going through being being on a trial, being in a jury, it, there was a ton that I didn't know about our court system as an adult. And I'm in my, you know, I'm not going to say my age, but I'm, I'm much older than, than people would think I am. So I was shocked at how little I knew about our own personal justice system. And imagine a child going through that. Well, and that's the number one reason that we lose volunteers because cases don't turn out. And the other thing is you've got to remember dependency is totally different than criminal. Mm-hmm. Because one of the first sexual abuse cases I got, you know, the first the first time we go to court, dad's in an orange jumpsuit. Um, well, actually, Paramore's in an orange jumpsuit up in there with the prisoners. And the next time he's sitting by me, you know, and that's hard. Yeah, but that's you tough. have to realize and what I always tell volunteers, it's never wasted. Anytime you're investing in a child, mm-hmm. even though if it doesn't turn out like you think it should, it's never wasted. And you get to pray for that child the rest of your life. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And win-win. you just never know. I'm a big advocate. Even small little things, you don't realize how big the impact could be. Mm-hmm. So somebody that's like me, that's a little bit, I don't love hearing those stories. And I don't know that I could be that person sitting right next to the child in courtroom. But there's other ed- ways that I can help support children. And, yeah. And, and getting the word out. That's huge. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. If somebody wants to volunteer, how do they get in touch with the Guardian Ad Lightum program? Um, the best way is to call our office, 850-595-3746. Um, Guardian Ad Litem has a state website. We have our local website, which is gal1.org, just the number one, G-A-L, the number one, dot org. Um, There's just a lot of information out there um, to get people hooked up with us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope this drives a lot of volunteers to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Joan, for doing what you do to support this program and to support and just be an advocate for children out there. It's incredible that you're doing that alongside, you know, your professional career as well. And I just think that's a great example to share with other people that, you know, it just takes a little bit and maybe they'll fall in love with it like you did and Mm -hmm. become the next, you know, full-time volunteer or, or, you know, who knows where the program can take them as well. Thank you so much, Colleen. Thank you for being here. We'll get back more 
more with Joan Irby a little bit when we get into the general discussion. But now I would like to introduce two other guests in the studio today. One of them I've known forever and one of them I just met today. So I love meeting new friends, but we've got in here the studio with us today. We've got Stacy Kostavecki. She is the executive director for the Gulf Coast Kids House. And so we're going to learn a little bit more about the Gulf Coast Kids House. But before we do that, I want to introduce Stacy by reading a little bit of her bio. So I know a little bit more about Stacy because we actually go back to ABWA, don't we? We do. We go I, way back. Yeah, I reminisced actually with Sally Vickers yesterday and I said, do I remember, Do we, were we back in the ABWA days? And she said, yeah, we were. And as a matter of fact, so was so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And yours was one of the names that she remembered. So that does go way back. Yeah, like 2006 back, I think, at Is least. It? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a, yeah. We've got some history. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And, and you're awesome. You graduated from Florida State University with a BA. You were actually um, going for a journalism career. And you had about the same thing happen to you that happened to Joan as well. You learned something that just changed your whole direction. Yeah, this little thing called volunteering. I was yeah, um, a creative writing major. I wanted to be an editor on an island somewhere, editing manuscripts and writing occasionally. And then took a class that was called Death and Dying. And I remember. Yeah. You had to, didn't you write? It wasn't a eulogy. What did you... Was it a eulogy? We had to write write? our own obituary and and plan our own funeral. And it was during that time that I was like, well, gosh, what would I say about me? What difference am I really making? And what difference will I make as an editor? And part of the class, too, was that you had to volunteer. So I started volunteering at a grief and loss counseling center and realized that I wanted to leave something bigger than some edited manuscripts behind. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. That's incredible. And so you were getting into the nonprofit world. I remember you were at Studer Group and uh, there was an opportunity with the Gulf Coast Kids House. Yes, I had been a volunteer at the Gulf Coast Kids House for several years. I worked with an agency here called Children's Services Center prior and it we focused on subsidized child care because child care can be as expensive as college tuition. It's actually more than college tuition yes. for many state schools now. And um so I, I volunteered there ever since I moved back home and was really excited to be able to work at Gulf Coast Kids House. That's wonderful. And you volunteered. They had an opening for an executive director. And I remember you telling me about the process. You were you were ruthless in what you were going to do to research and to be prepared for the interview. I remember you told me you went through every 990 that they had on file, which if, if people don't know what a 990 is, it is a financial statement that is just full of numbers. So you really have to, and you're not naturally a number person, are you? No, not naturally. No. And it's um, definitely a good sleep aid to go <laughs> through some 990s, but it's a really important document because it, it speaks really to the health of organization. Absolutely. And I'm an advocate now for Impact 100. And with my past financial career, I get in there and I just scrutinize 990s. And you're absolutely right. You can look at a 990 and tell the health of the organization. You can also tell if there's some red flags. You might not necessarily know exactly what's, you know, if there's something going on that's that's not correct, but you can at least see some red flags and kind of go, wait a minute, you know, let me ask some questions about that, Uh-oh. which is exactly what you did. You went through and tagged the whole 990. You had a huge list of questions. Of course, you went in and aced the interview, and they hired you uh, shortly thereafter. I was very excited for that. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> that was back in 2000? 
2010. 2010. Mm-hmm. You've been with the Gulf Coast Kids House since then. It's been a while, yeah. It has. It has. And you brought with you today Leslie Donovan. And Leslie is one of the child abuse prevention coordinators for Gulf Coast Kids House. Yes. So introduce her and introduce what her role is with the Gulf Coast Kids House. We're super excited to bring on Leslie Donovan. Um, she's been a volunteer with us for three to four years, I believe, teaching our child abuse prevention education in the community. And several years ago, our board and our staff identified that we wanted child abuse prevention spending to outpace what we're spending on intervention. We really want to target children and adults and prevent abuse from happening altogether, and then also make sure that people have the tools that they need to report suspected abuse. So we've had, um, we established our prevention program about five years ago and had a part-time prevention coordinator. She just went full-time in April, and then we were able to bring Leslie on. And Leslie's got a great history of public health education, Um, lots of experience at universities, and it's it's a whole different type of mindset, I think, with our child abuse prevention education, because it is really focusing on changing the trends in the community. And we're just so excited to have her. She's already made a tremendous difference. That is wonderful. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you. Absolutely. Tell us why Gulf Coast Kids House. What drew you to that? Well, it's interesting when I'm listening to um, uh, Joan talk about her past and history and and as well as Stacy. it, it just kind of happened. It was a part of the life journey. Um, when I, I was, I'm a fellow Seminole, also a graduate of Florida State University, and studied interpersonal communication and um, child development, and never really thought it, I could do anything with that, you know, and then I later <laughs> went into higher ed and wellness services, and so that's where I started working with universities. I was going to say, because that's kind of the money path with that degree, isn't it? Yes. You've got to look to the universities. Yes, exactly, and I always was involved in student development. That's what my passion is, but just like Joan, it was actually kind of a church event that got me interested in children. Um, I have four of my own, and we lived in Brandon. We've lived all over the place. And uh, the youth pastor was speaking about how to dis- define what your passions are. And the way he described it is what makes you weep? When you see something in the newspaper or hear it on the news, what makes you cry? And for some, it's animals. For some, it's starving children. And for me, anytime I read something about a child being neglected uh, medically, Uh, abused in some way, Um, what I used to see with college students, a lot of relationship violence, um, those types of things would make me weep. And so for me, I was actually working up at the University of West Florida, and in 2015, we had a house fire. And so um, that actually was a pivotal moment for me because I resigned from my position to stay home with my kids and handle that issue. And, uh, but then after a while, I was like, I need to do something. You know, mm-hmm. I told Stacy the other day, I have to make impact. That's, you know, I have to make a difference in people's lives. That's what I've always done on this journey. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just thought back to my passion um, that I've never actually fulfilled. And I looked up Gulf Coast Kids House, went to meet with them and told, you know, I had a meeting with Stacy and kind of told her a little bit about my background and everything I had learned in public health working mm-hmm. at the universities. And it just became a natural fit. I, I love, I'm a lifelong learner. 
and I love to educate. And so the prevention aspect was really the key for me because I like when students and parents um, have those aha moments. Like, I did not know that. I did not know how to do that. And that, that's what moves me. That's really cool. I love hearing the passion from your story and, and how you got involved. You know, it's funny how similar it is to all three of you ladies here. And I did not plan that for the audience listening. We did not strategically set that up. It just happened. But I think that's super cool. And and Stacey, you've done a lot towards changing the Gulf Coast Kids House, like you said, to be more about prevention rather than handling it after the fact. And I think there's a different, that generates a different emotion and a different satisfaction in each one of us. Is that, that's really what gets you to isn't it Leslie absolutely Absolutely. that's really cool so how long have you been with the kids house now Uh, just like Stacy said about three and a half maybe starting the fourth year and um, yeah so that's not too long yeah when you think about what you do what gets what maybe a success story or something that just gets you excited and and riled up to say hey I'm going to you know help more kids today tell us about even something recent that happened or something from, you know, further in the past, what comes to mind? Absolutely. When, um, you know, I would, I kind of break things down into the categories of, of who and, and, um, how we work. And so there's children, you know, elementary school, kindergarten through Mm -hmm. fifth grade. And what impacts me there is when we go to the schools and we have these five safety rules. And, uh, one of them is a red flag, which is what you had just mentioned just in the nine nineties. Right. Mm -hmm. So we can use these tools, um, throughout our lives on, in a lot of different areas. And we teach them for safety. And, um, so that, for safety and success. And that's the thing is all parents and guardian ad litems and everyone, we want children to be successful. Mm-hmm. So when the children, we do movements in, in the K through five. So every of each one of the five safety rules has a motion. And when you see them outside and, or you come back year after year, they remember these rules. You know, not only do they remember you, but they remember them. Wow. And just to kind of give you that quick rundown, it's, um, it's uh, know what's up spot red flags, make a move, talk it up, which I love because that's empowering with an assertive voice for them to re- have show respect and boundaries and mm-hmm. know how to report and then no blame, no shame. And then when we recently, I was at a middle school and they're seeing so many different issues with the, the digital changes and the digital dangers, cyberbullying. And this is something that me and many adults, we don't, it, this is above our pay grade, you know? Yeah. And so I've been, yeah, really we didn't c- deal with all this <laughs> no. no, in our day and age. No, it's the new stranger danger, you know? Mm-hmm. So we now know that, you know, children are abused um, by people that they know more often than, than people that they do not know. But when it comes to online activity, it's often always a stranger. And sometimes that stranger is a fellow teenager. And so our children, our teenagers are dealing with some things that um, when I spoke to parents yesterday at this middle school, it just blew them away. They have no idea. They know something's going on. They don't know what it is. And it's really all about starting those conversations. And that's what kind of charges me up. If we can get those conversations happening. Um, I've had communication couches, communication cars, communication kitchens in my (laughs) lifetime. And it's all about talk, talk, talk. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, being able to talk about these subjects is so important. And it's so difficult. But I still remember the old stop, drop and roll. Do you remember that, yes, Stacey? Absolutely. Yeah. And that, Joan, you remember that too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if they even teach that anymore. 
I've never had to use that, but yeah. um, but that brings me back to exactly what you're saying about these five activities and the motions gener- you know, associated with them. It's something that will imp- implant yes. in a child's brain, and at one moment, their brain's going to go, mm, I need to use that information. You know, now it makes it different. So without doing that, it makes it very difficult for those children to have those those tools. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you've got to get them. Yeah, I told the middle schoolers yesterday, you've got to decide what line you're going to be on, you know, and so so we like to get them before things happen. And right. talk about what if scenarios, you know, and, and, and give voc- um, language to the parents on how to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. And what we really see when we go out, we, and this is really kind of one of the biggest impacts, is we're giving them education, but there's a secondary effect to that prevention. And that is they now see that some of these things that I've been worried about are okay to talk about. Mm-hmm. And now they're more comfortable and they're sure. more empowered and secure to do so. And so then they come home and they they will say things like, you know, what if this were to happen to a friend of mine? Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of testing mm-hmm. the waters to sure. see, you know, how their parents and safe adults will respond. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those safe adults are in the house or outside of the home. And uh, so it's just, I don't know, all of that is super exciting to me. That is. That's really cool. I love I love hearing that. And and I don't get caught up as often as I I probably could with Gulf Coast Kids House. So tell me, Stacy, what kind of things are y'all doing on the technology front to combat exactly what Leslie's talking about? That children are are involved in so many other things because of our technology now that makes it more difficult to isolate these types of incidents, but also give them safe places as well. Sure. We, are y'all addressing that already? We are. You know, we last week we just had um, Sergeant Brown with the Pensacola Police Department come out and do a lunch and learn for our staff because Wonderful. it's one of those things that apps and just the cyber digital environment changes daily. So to try to think that we can stay ahead of that war, yes. is, we're fooling ourselves. So yeah. like Leslie said, it's so much of it is communication. And we can teach you about Snapchat and we can teach you about certain apps and what's going on, but that'll change tomorrow. So Mm -hmm. we do our best. But Mm -hmm. the biggest thing that we're talking with adults about is the five safety rules. We can even apply them to adults and keeping their children safe when they're on the internet. Um, We do have a couple of formal classes that we do with internet safety and dating safety and those types of things. But again, a lot of the rules that we talk about in there are talking and communication and, um, We always say communicate early and often with Mm -hmm. kids about Mm -hmm. everything, about their sexuality, about their body parts, about the Internet, about um, child abuse and what appropriate boundaries to have with other kids and adults. And I. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, if you don't talk to them, then they will go to their friends and the Internet to get the answers. And the big thing about technology is two things. The teens are getting their self-esteem from their social media access, many of them, maybe not all, but many of them are. And the second thing is this is the first generation that is being raised uh, with technology in their hands as they're approaching and experiencing their sexual identity and figuring out who they are. Mm -hmm. And that's never happened before. Did we just talk about this, Joan? (laughs) We did. (laughs) We did. Before y'all got here this morning, we were actually talking about, I heard a statistic that kids are having sex at 
um, they're not having sex at the younger ages like previous generations had. And from the outside, that looks like a positive statistic. You know, of course, we don't want kids having sex early. But the result of the study was actually the fact that the reason that they're not having sex is because they're having trouble communicating. And they don't, they don't quite understand that yet. So of course, it is preventing them from having physical interaction. But I can see the future and some of the problems that that's going to create with relationship building and, you know, marriages and, and who knows what when they get much older. Well, and the, the reality is the stuff that they're finding online is not a healthy depiction of what real life sex lives are like. And so these yeah. kids are getting, right when they're developing, they're getting a skewed view of relationships and respect and love. And so it, it is really challenging. It's going to be a challenge in the future to to try to remap that, Mm -hmm. which is why having those conversations early is so important. Yeah. And there's and there's so many examples of negative things out there on the Internet. And, and you know, like you said, the information skewed. But then there's also the predators that are constantly using those social media channels to to, you know, communicate in, in improper ways. Absolutely. And I'm an example. My mom and I did not communicate a lot growing up. So most everything I learned about relationships and about sex wasn't because of the internet because back then we didn't quite have those tools but it was it was in the wrong places I learned from my good friends that that were not having sex but were telling me things and and I, later I learned those were not true and you know but it, it did it it had a, a, a dramatic impact on my later life yeah. you know and it was really hard to overcome well and I just keep thinking about guardian ad litem too and the I think when you think about the child welfare system with Gulf Coast Kids House, we've been able to tighten the gaps, make the gaps a little bit smaller. So I always think about that professor with the jar. And so maybe we're the big pebbles Mm -hmm. and then the rest of the child welfare system is like the gravel. But then guardian ad litem to me is the water that comes in and fills the rest of those gaps. And when it comes to child welfare and child protection, Groups like that, like Guardian and Litem, are so important because just like the gravel and the boulders, child welfare system is rigid and there are certain things that we would like to change that we can't change because it is many times a state function. And so we try to fill in the gaps as best we can, but we can't do it without volunteers and concerned community members like Guardian Ad Litem, like yourself, people that actually pause and take a minute to give back to these kids and have those discussions. Because if they're not having them at home, hopefully they have them with a Guardian Ad Litem or Mm -hmm. someone else in their life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such an important point. And that's right on exactly where I was going to go next, because the reason that that I grouped the three of y'all together today, and it didn't happen, you know, strategically, it kind of happened a little bit by accident. But I purposely, Joan decided to book for the April show. And then I grabbed you at Stacy from the Gulf Coast Kids House, because April is Child Abuse Prevention Month. And that's an example of a collaborative effort, not only with the Gulf Coast Kids House, but also with the other entities, including Guardian Out Litem and everybody else that helps support children that are unfortunately a victim or, or in a situation of child abuse. So tell us a little bit more about the April Prevention Month. I know I've been handing out the posters for the Blue is Better. We've got blue bows going up everywhere. But then the other thing I wanted to ask you about are these mandatory reporter 
uh, posters because these kind of surprised me a little bit. And and sometimes I'm, you know, I'm learning things because sometimes I'm in a bubble because I don't have children of my own. So some of these things kind of hit me a little bit differently as, as a, you know, a, a woman that has never born children. But I didn't realize in the state of Florida, you can actually go to jail if you suspect child abuse and you don't report it. Yeah. I always thought it was if you see child abuse and you don't report it, of course, you should go to jail. But I can give you one example, yeah, too, of locally. Um, and this is all I mean, this is all public record. I'm not telling you any secrets. But um, a couple of years ago, we actually had two cases almost a year apart. But the first case we had with the child that drank the the Drano in Milton in the sippy cup. I remember that. Yes. Um, the thing was, they lived in a fourplex. So a, like a little fourplex building and there were three other neighbors that knew that the paramour mom's boyfriend was um, making meth there and knew there were children so now those people didn't go to jail but they did have to come in to testify and I mean that's the whole thing about you know when you start thinking is this is this child abuse well we know if they're making drugs in a house and there's children that's a problem. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not it's not rocket science. but No, know. it shouldn't be. But what do we do in Walmart when we see that parent that, you know, whacks a child? Is that, help me understand that. That's, it's such a fine line. Yeah. What we always tell people is when you're in Walmart and you see an incident like that, be sure to get as much information as you can. Because sadly, even if you fulfill your obligation by calling it into the abuse hotline and you say... It was a red minivan. Uh, we're at the Pace Walmart, and it was at 324. That's not going to give them enough to find that child or that family to help them. But I think the our rule of thumb is, and what we tell people, is that you don't have to know it's happening. It, you have to have a suspicion. Mm-hmm. Um, what calling the abuse hotline does is it gets a professional out there to figure out what's really going on. I mean, you wouldn't, it's like going to the doctor's office, you know, you, you don't diagnose yourself. You bring in a professional to do that. Sure. And so that's what you're doing with the abuse hotline. And it's not like, I know when I grew up, people would say, oh, HRS is going to pull you out of your house. Joan can speak to, it. it's very hard to actually remove a child from their home. The state's focus is to keep children in their home because no matter how bad it is children want to be with their parents absolutely and children should be with their parents if the conditions are right yeah the system's Mm -hmm. focus is to try to to fix the home and make it a safe place for the child so we really try to take that fear out of people and say you're not this is not a death sentence you're not sending this person to jail you are just calling and saying I think something's not right here and I'd like for someone to check it out Right. And I think you're right. I think that's the biggest stigma is that I grew up in a household that my mom would say, you know, mind your own business, you know, keep your nose out of your neighbor's, you know, private things going on. But we're in a different society now. And those professionals are in place to actually decide, is there a crime happening? You, by reporting it, aren't saying it's a crime. You're saying, hey, let me let me bring some attention to this and have the actual the authorities decide you know, where to go from there. And we do think that your gut is important. I mean, you know how you Mm -hmm. have that feeling and it's like something's just not right. Mm -hmm. And you might not know exactly what it is. And the thing that I always tell people is, especially with our kids, um, if they're not in school yet, they only know what they know. 
They could be being sexually abused every day. They have no idea that every other child that they've ever seen in their life is not doing that. So kids only know what they know. So like what Stacy said, bringing us somebody in to see the family, to see if maybe the dynamics aren't right, you know, and they need some help. And, you know, it's not that threatening even, you know, it's it. This is hard. And when kids were removed, but like I always tell the volunteers to tell the kids, because you're talking to little kids sometimes, and you say, mom and dad are having a timeout right now to get some things worked out. And we want you to be safe in the meantime, you know, I mean, so that it's not quite as threatening. Because the really bad thing about volunteering for something like this, you know nothing. You don't know when they're going to go back. You don't sometimes know where the parents are. You might not know where their siblings are. You know, you don't have a whole lot of answers. But what you can do is offer that hope to that child today and be there for them. Yeah. That's the big thing. That's awesome. That's awesome. So posters are available. They can come to the Gulf Coast Kids House, and I'm sure there's other places offering the posters as well. And we want to bring more awareness for the From Blue is Better program and April being Child Prevention, Child Abuse Prevention Month. So anybody can come and pick up the posters and, and display them at their location. You guys are not doing the blue lights anymore, are you? No, we never got to do blue lights. We did do blue bows on the bridges one year, and that was a um, Florida Department of Transportation nightmare. We almost got arrested, so <laughs> <laughs> so we do. Uh, we have our blue bows up going downtown in uh, Palafox, and also local businesses, and just like. October and all the pink that you see that's really our goal with child abuse prevention month is to get people talking about child abuse get them to recognize the signs and most importantly to realize that it is a community issue there are social economic long-term impacts that are associated with child abuse so if you think it's not your business today it's going to be your business tomorrow as you're trying to hire employees as you're trying to focus on the local economy it impacts it at every level absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely and I think that's that's really cool I'm using the mandatory reporter posters to um, I'm encouraging businesses to put them up in their restrooms if they have like public restrooms because to me that's a that is a safe place and that's a you know it's a very it's it's a place that would stay up there all year round not just through the month of April yes absolutely and we're doing a lot of prevention education programs so um, we've always said night day weekends middle of the night we will come and talk to a group no matter how big or how small and I've seen Joan at some of these events too in the middle of the night it's we we're advocates for the kids and for trying to prevent this from happening absolutely have us out let us talk Exactly. And like Stacy mentioned, it is our responsibility. We are here to support the community. So everybody takes a piece of that. And, and, and working together, it's amazing at what you can do. Just bringing awareness, starting communication, and then providing some advocates and some resources for, for children as well. So thank you again, Stacy and Leslie, for being here. So if people want to get in touch with Gulf Coast Kids House, tell us how they do that. Sure. They can call our main line at 595-5800, or they can visit our website, gulfcoastkidshouse.org or find us on Facebook at uh, GC Kids House. Awesome. Perfect. All right. Now we're going to turn it to our group discussion. And I actually, as I mentioned in the intro, I've known Stacy for quite a while. And we actually interviewed Stacy in the October 2015 edition of our Powerful Women of the Gulf Coast magazine, which people can still find online. And you told us some great things in that interview. So I want to talk about a few of the things that I'm bringing back Joan in the discussion and Leslie as well. If you want to contribute, feel free. But one of the first things I wanted to talk about was work-life integration. So I've got three 
three women in the in the audience today that are super passionate about what you do. And Joan, you already talked about the fact that, you know, well, we didn't quite talk about it today, but in your bio, 30 years ago or or you know, in your earlier career, you were much more focused on a different area of business, which was making money and and being as productive and as efficient as possible. But as you've aged, things have, have kind of changed for you. And it's more about passion. And it's more about making a difference in somebody's life. And that's really important. And I know, Stacy, when we talked originally in the interview, we talked about the fact that when you came into the kids house, what you did for the interview was not you know, it wasn't okay, I got the job. Now I can just sit back and, and run the kids house because everybody else is going to do the hard work. You actually were much more of an advocate of hey, as the executive director, I've got to be one of the hardest working people in the in the, the group as well. So that was three years ago. Are you still working 50, 50 hours a week as well? Generally speaking, yes. Um, I will say, though, that back in I think that was what 2015 that we talked. Um, yeah, it was like I wore my hours and my my hard work like a badge of honor. And I do think that in this field of work, you have to be very mindful of burnout. And um, what I realized and that how I've grown since that time was that because I was there 50, 55, 60 hours a week that many of my employees felt that same pressure and they didn't feel that they had the flexibility to take time off and to do practice self-care. And it was one of my youngest employees that came in and said, I know you tell us to go home, but you don't do it. And so it feels like we can't do it either. So I, it was a real hold up the mirror moment for me. And it has really shifted a lot of the culture for us at the kids' house. We work hard, but we also play hard. And there is a hard division between um, when you're working and when you're not. And there mm-hmm. is a Unless the building is on fire or you cannot help anything, do not bother people when they're off because this work is really hard and we've got to focus on the self-care of our employees because if they can't be all they can be at work, they can't help those kids. And I think that's such an important point. I talk about, I don't talk about so much about work-life balance. I used to use that terminology, work-life balance. But I think as we as women have, have been more involved in community and passionate efforts, whether they're with our full-time occupation or with what we do on the side, I think it really comes back to that women are, are, I don't know that we are ever going to have an opportunity where we're balanced. So I talk about work-life integration because I think those passions and those, those heartstrings interact with your personal life as well. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Self-care is a big part of that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, if you're doing something you love, work doesn't always feel like work, but you still just have to take that moment to breathe and make sure that you are putting as much into your personal life as you are your work life. Absolutely. And I know with my husband, I'll get to you here in a second, Joan, but my husband um, and I have some hard, fast rules. Like I'm not allowed to come into the house on a cell phone call. If I'm on a phone call, I have to stay outside until I finish my call before I walk in. And I literally will stand on my porch, not during the summer, but during the winter months for 30 minutes if I'm finishing up a conversation because that's one of our things that we do not do. Mm-hmm. Um, how about you, Joan? What were you going to say on that? Yeah. Point? And that's the thing, you know, with me coming from a real estate and then we owned our own business before I got into real estate, you know, and you're kind of always on. 
And that's been really, that's been one of the hardest things coming to work for the state because you have hours, you know, even though I'm, I can flex because like doing the chocolate fest this weekend and things like that, you know, you flex out your time, but it's like, I'm always on. And, and that mm-hmm. mindset really doesn't change. You know, it's kind of like I'm a parent sometime. No, I'm a parent all the time. Yeah. No, I'm a child advocate all the time, yeah. you know, so it does really kind of integrate. But one thing I did do this past year, because a lot of our, cause I don't have to deal with the cases on a daily basis. I get to do the fun stuff like this. But I did a self-care day for our social workers and attorneys, you know, and we did. I remember, didn't yeah. some of our ladies oh, you like did. donate And you actually stuff. donated, Colleen, yes. And some people donated their services mm-hmm. and, you know, like hand massages and facials mm-hmm. and, you know, a lunch. And um, we had a music therapist come in and play some tuning fork stuff for us to chill us out. It's just really good because I'm telling you, people that work in this profession, because it becomes your life, you don't turn it off. And you have to because child abuse is hard and it's Mm -hmm. ugly and Mm -hmm. it's just really hard. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I still remember Stacy back. I think you'd only been at the kids house maybe a year and you invited me to one of the lunches where it's one of those, you know, where people tell you stories and, and, you know, it's heart wrenching. And I remember asking you afterwards how you handle that. Yeah, there, you've got. Has that gotten any easier? Um, it has. I think you find, like Joan was saying, we have a lot of um, coping things that we do at the office. Lots of food and yoga and exercise and breathing and a lot of humor. Humor, even if it's dark, <laughs> is important in this yeah. line of work. And I've heard you write little sticky notes for people too. Yes, I'll do. I. It's so cheesy, um, but yeah, we do some silly things like that, but I think you do have to be good at compartmentalization, and then you have to focus on the parts that you can impact, mm-hmm. and knowing, like I think Joan said it earlier, or Leslie, one of them said, that you, no matter how the case turns out, you have to know that your involvement in it, or that even that you've been at a classroom, that you have impacted at least one person in some small way, and you have to just keep focus on that small way. Yeah, because you can't, anybody that's going to volunteer, or even at the levels that you ladies are as well, you can't control the outcome. I mean, sometimes the outcome is just the outcome. You can help in the process make it even, you know, more efficient, more effective, but sometimes there's just nothing you can do to control that outcome. And a lot of times, like you mentioned, Joan, the outcome is sad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's heart wrenching and it's and it's emotional. And that's a hard thing to kind of let go at the end of the day. So speaking of those things, what things keep you grounded? I know, Stacy, I remember a quote that you used a, a, in the magazine interview about keeping your eyes on the stars and your feet on the ground. Does that still help you kind of reset mentally and have that positive mindset yes I mean I think you always have to look forward but you also have to be realistic in that we can't fly unless we're in an airplane but we can we can seek to fly um and grounding period sticking your feet in the dirt or in the sand as we're so lucky to have here is a huge way of just coping with everyday activities Absolutely. And I know, Joan, you used a quote as well when when you were looking at these questions about leave, uh, leave people better than when you found them. And that's I mean, that's what I do with tell my volunteers all the time, because we can't change the outcomes. We can't change the horrible things, these children. But we can we can leave them better when we when we've left them, even with adults, though. I mean, even dealing in life, Mm -hmm. you know, not just to have 
the total compassion for the child, but just in your normal life. Because you see, you will see those social workers that are very geared on one avenue, but then in regular life, they're like grumpy. And, and that's the other thing. I don't know how people that don't, I'm naturally very optimistic, positive. And like he asked me how I was this morning, I said, awesome. And until something happens that's not quite awesome, I'm always awesome, you know, and to have that attitude going in, I think that's really what keeps me grounded. Absolutely. And you talked a little bit before the show and and with some of your notes about how important that passion is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely right. I, I just posted something on Instagram this week about hire for will or yeah, hire for will, train for skill. And I think it's because of the passion part. If people are passionate, you can educate them on anything that they need to learn. But the passion is so hard to replicate. And it's so hard to instill in people that aren't passionate. So it sounds like each of you ladies come from a really passionate background. Leslie, do you have some go-to motivational quotes or do you some do I some do. things that keep you grounded? Yeah. What do you do? Well, you had mentioned yoga earlier. And um, I, I'm going through a yoga teacher training. And oh. uh, so I've learned a lot. It's been a wonderful journey. Are you bendy? Yes, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> but um, my mantra, I guess you could say, and even my dharma, like my life's intention and purpose. Um, one of the things that I use is be curious and have compassion. And that be curious is kind of um, not why is someone being a certain way, but what might have happened to them. Yeah. Um, and then have compassion for them and even apply that to you were talking about work life balance, apply mm -hmm. that to yourself, mm -hmm. you know, be curious about why you're feeling a certain way, and what you might need and have compassion for yourself. Mm -hmm. And those two things are kind of my, my path that I follow. Absolutely. I love that. And as it, as you mentioned that Joan was writing it down because I think it's so effective. That's really cool to to put curiosity with, you know, the impact of passion. I think that's that's really cool. That's one of the things I love talking to students. We had a big event, a human trafficking event Tuesday. I think it was Tuesday night at UWF. I love talking to college students because sometimes, I mean, at that point in your life, you really might not know what you want to do the rest of your life. What is it? 80% of people um, in their career are not doing what they majored in in college. I mean, that's the thing. If they, if they can figure out what their passion is early, I mean, it took me until my 50s, you know, to figure that out. So I love talking to college students about looking for that passion in their life. Yeah, I'm very envious of the young students now that are finding that passion so much earlier. Y'all are all me nodding too. your head. Y'all yeah. are the yeah. same, too. I didn't find my passion until later. It was so misdirected. My youth was so much about rebellion and about bucking the system. And I didn't realize until later on in life, that's actually entrepreneurship and if somebody would have explained that to mm. me when I was young there is no telling what I would have done earlier in my life but it took me much longer to realize that that wasn't necessarily defiance it was just wanting a different way of doing Absolutely. doing things yeah so let's talk a little bit about some other things that women do really well so I had Quint Studer on the show a year ago it's been a little bit more than a year ago and I asked him I said what do you think what are some things that women do well and and he actually said that there's one thing that women Women do really well but it's also their biggest downfall and that was multitasking do you remember in the day and age when we used to think multitasking was like an asset <laughs> and those those tides have kind of turned haven't they so I know Stacy you talked a little bit about I love this quote you said I like to be liked but I also like to be right 
Right. Do you remember that? <laughs> that, was three, that was three years ago. And the like to be liked part, I think, is something that women do naturally well, that they are people pleasers and they tend to they tend to realize how important it is for the outcome. You know, to be liked is, is something important. But then how do you balance that with liking to be right as well? Right. And, and has that changed over the years? Um, it has. And I think when I when I think about it, I like to be right, it's not... Not for, I would say I'd change it to, I like to be just. Um, mm. It's not so That's much good. right. It's not, I don't, there's no place for ego in right. the workplace. And you're so. not an egotistical person. I, I know you I well enough not. to, yeah, you are, <laughs> that is not She's you not. at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, that quote. I'm always like, oh, no, that's not uh, just. It's good to be just. But I think that, yeah, women are naturally a little more compassionate, a little more gray than our, our men counterparts. And mm-hmm. so we can see why, like Leslie was saying, why someone might be acting that way or kind of get in our head and try to figure that part out. And where it becomes a challenge is when it's unjust or we know that the it's not leading towards the best outcome. And that can contribute to conflict which I think women and I hate to say women you know blanket statement but I do think I think conflict is hard for anyone and I do think I that agree. it can be especially hard for women mm-hmm. and I think it's because of that exact point you know the fact that that women like to be liked it makes conflict conflict resolution so difficult um so you've got a great way of handling conflict resolution tell us and I know this goes back to your studer group days yes so remind us about what you learned from then and and is it the same thing do you still use that same format with conflict resolution now still absolutely use it studer group teaches amazing things and I was really fortunate to get to kind of grow up there for Mm -hmm. a time um but a lot of the stuff they teach about conflict resolution is taking any kind of personal stuff out of it. So there's a formula they use where they, if Leslie and I were having an argument, it would be, Leslie, when you interrupt me, I feel that you don't think what I'm saying is important. And the result is that I don't want to talk to you anymore because I can't get my point across. And so it's not, you're trying to have the actual behavior, what the result of that behavior is. And how the feeling is and then you kind of move forward to how we're going to resolve this Mm -hmm. and I think that's really important and that goes right back to to the you know wanting to be liked if we keep the focus on the person you know if I said Leslie you know when you do this and then when you do this then it's all about Leslie and it's not about the action and so what you're doing is you're actually taking it and focusing on the action which is is something that you can talk about and it doesn't disrupt the personal relationship that you have with Leslie. Right. Absolutely. Um, Hardwiring Excellence is Quint's first book and I still... I love that book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When I have something uncomfortable that I'm going to have to do at work or we have to have a performance discussion, they have all these great acronyms, desk and blah, blah, blah. I can't tell you what they mean now, but I've got dog-eared pages because it is such a good formula for trying to put more objectivity into difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you still script a lot? Um, Not as much as I used to, but I do uh, rehearse a good bit. Mm -hmm. And that's very similar to scripting. It's Mm -hmm. almost playing before you get on the field. Just like we were talking about some of the things you were talking about, Leslie, about prevention. It's all about learning what to do before you're in the situation. Absolutely. So that you can really be good at handling the situation. The last thing you want to do is 
is practice when you're in the situation itself. So what do you do, or Leslie, what are some things that you think women do or maybe women don't do as well? Do you agree with some of these multitasking and conflict resolution? Yeah, I do agree with that. And I also think that many of us can think outside the box and see sometimes big pictures and then be able to dial that down into some details. Um, and that's really all I would have to add on that, you know, but mm -hmm. I, that's what I have seen. I would agree. I think women are really good at that. We can see that big picture and maybe it's because we are the nurturer and the, and the caretaker, but then we can hone in on those, those minute details as well. How about you, Joan? What do you want um, to share about that? With, of course, everything that's been said, but also that we, we bring in a lot of energy that we produce energy when we get into a situation and, and not just, um, not, I'm not talking about silly and stuff. I'm just talking about really in like a business meeting or in a meeting with, you know, my peers, bringing in a different energy. And I think that's what's very important, mm -hmm. you know, and I strive to do that when I come into some kind of meeting, especially if there's conflict, right. you know, not, not anger, but just a positive energy to this. Yeah, and execution. I think yes. we're better yes. at executing. I think so too. Yeah, because we've got the energy to cross that finish line. Well, mm -hmm. and I think maybe, so, do you think multitasking has anything to do with it? You know, we've got so much stuff we got to get done. We just are in a hurry to go ahead and check this thing off our list. Yeah. Another one of my favorite quotes is, if you want something done, ask someone who's busy. That's that just true. That is good. <laughs> that yeah. is a really good one as well. So mm -hmm. that's perfect. I want, I love that you're sharing that. And then Joan, on your point too, it, you know, you didn't mean it to be a plug about powerful women, but it's exactly what happens when we go to the powerful women yes. meetings. Stacy, were you in the building last Friday when we brought 59, did you hear 59 women showed up to our meeting last week? I did hear quite a bit of ruckus. <laughs> yeah. Good ruckus. You get, like, yeah. You get a lot of women in a room and it is loud. <laughs> yeah. But good things, that positive energy that Joan was talking about, you mm -hmm. can feel it kind of ballooning out of the conference room when y'all are there. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully we weren't too disruptive. Back in the days when you guys didn't have that separate conference room, I'm sure you would have escorted us out of the building because we would have been so loud. Um, you it need helps. some buoyancy and laughter in those hallways sometimes, so it's perfectly yeah. fine. <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, we're going to wrap it up now. You've been listening to three amazing women in, this, in the audience today. Our goal with Powerful Women of the Gulf Coast is to promote, advance, and improve women in business. So that's one of the reasons that we do this show. So I want to go back around and I want to hear from each of you what it is you do and ways that people can reach out to get connected with you. So one of the guests that you heard from today is Joan Irby with Guardian Ad Litem. And tell us more about um, your passion and, and how people can reach out to you. Well, and, and like I've said, you know, it's all about the kids and being an advocate for them. Um, we need volunteers w with the kids that we have. We only have about 78% of them here in the first circuit that have actually a volunteer. So um, wow. some of them are still having the social workers that are assigned to them. And if the child doesn't have that, that, um, that volunteer, they don't have that voice because there's no way that you can expect that social worker to be able to keep with that many kids. The other thing is that's really big right now in our community um, is the trafficking issues. Um, sex trafficking, um, child sex trafficking. And I would encourage parents out there, you really need to be in touch with this stuff because it's not just, um, the reason that I'm so involved is 86% of kids that run away, and I'm not talking about running to grandmoms, I'm talking about hitting the streets, are, are from the system. They're from the foster system. And one in six of them will be trafficked. 
So it's it's a huge population wow. of ours that is getting out there in the streets. But it's also it's also our kids, not necessarily the ones in foster care. It's grooming that comes from, you know, when my friends say this doesn't involve my kids, I said, well, one of my little boys in high school that's in a cross docket, which means he's in de- delinquency too. Um, yeah, it could be a chance that he might hook up with your daughter and he might take her to New Orleans and get $1,500 for her. Mm-hmm. And your daughter might not be street smart enough to get out of that situation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that it really is a different day and time. And parents have to be vigilant. And for us to just think that it doesn't affect our kids, we've got to wake up and we've got to get, we've got to be aware. We've got to be involved. Um, and we can't just go. We're not here just to be our kids' friends. So I encourage the people like me that necessarily kids weren't in foster care, that you may need to make a difference in these children's lives so they're not affecting your kids. You're absolutely right. If it's not going to happen in, right in your household, it's going to affect your household. For it sure. will. Yeah. It will. So if people want to volunteer, they can volunteer as little or as much as, for the time that they have available. And how do they get in touch with you, Joan? And you can call me at the office. Our office in Escambia County is actually in the Juvenile Justice Building, the Juvenile Justice Courthouse on St. Mary next to the Sheriff's Department. The number is 850-595-3746. Um, of course, we're on Facebook. Um, First Circuit um, Guardian Ad Litem. We, um, if if you don't necessarily want to work with a child, but you want to help me with events, mm-hmm. we have events casserole. all the time. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to make a casserole, I can hook you up. But mm-hmm. seriously, whatever your gifting is, whatever your passion is, let us know, and one of us can find a way to plug you in. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being here, Joan. Thank you. And if you want to meet Joan, she comes to, she's one of our powerful women of the Gulf Coast members. She's a premier member and she comes to many of our meetings. Uh, April's going to be real busy for her though. So, but come and meet her at one of our meetings as well. And she will definitely uh, get you connected into, into wherever there is an opportunity to help. Thank you, Colleen. Absolutely. And then we also, I got to welcome Leslie Donovan. First time to meet you, but I'm so glad you're here. Tell us um, how people can get in touch with you and and ways that they might help directly with what you're doing as well. Okay. Yes. Um, I can be reached at prevention1 at gulfcoastkidshouse.org. And then Stacy will tell you the main number again, because I can't remember it right now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But um, uh, we have probably over nine prevention programs. And people can help by, if they're involved in an organization, they can invite us to come to speak to their students or their adults that work there. Uh, they, we need volunteers, so they can reach out to us to see about being a facilitator. And, um, and then if they have a child in a school that we have not been to, uh, we've been to 29 of the 31 schools, so there might be a couple that we've missed or grades, mm-hmm. please invite us there. And just remember that the critical information that we can give in prevention is just the same as what people learn when they're learning how to dri- uh, drive. They have We don't just throw them the keys mm-hmm. and say, go drive on the interstate. We take baby steps. Boating, safety, all those things matter. And that's really what this is, is we're giving critical information and uh, so that children can be safe and successful. That's wonderful. Thank you for what you do for the Gulf Coast Kids House. Thank you. Glad I know to do they, it. I know they appreciate you so much, and I'm so glad to have met you today and brought you on the show. Same here. Thank you, Colleen. Absolutely. And Stacy, who are you looking for, and, and how can people help? Sure. We're also always looking for volunteers, and especially during the month of April, I think if you're having any kind of um, 
gathering at your place of business. I know like Hill Kelly Dodge is having a child safety day and I think Joan and we will both be out there, but any kind of event like that, please have us out not only in the month of April, but all year long and get those blue bows, show your support for child abuse prevention in the community. And just know that no matter how insignificant you think your contribution could be to child welfare, plug in somewhere because you're going to make a tremendous difference. Absolutely. And you guys are so great, too. The Gulf Coast Kids House does a number of events. We were talking earlier about Chocolate Fest, uh, which has already passed. So if you're a chocolate advocate, you've missed it for this year. But there are a ton of other events that Gulf Coast Kids House does as well. So give us the main number and the website, too. Yes, our main number is 595-5800. And our website is gulfcoastkidshouse.org. Awesome. Awesome. So the number of ways that people can help. And thank you, ladies, again, for being here. April is Child Abuse Prevention Month. So I'm glad that we were able to coordinate three individuals that are all involved in in child abuse prevention. So thank you again, ladies, for being here. And again, you've been listening to Powerful Women of the Gulf Coast. This is our Women in Leadership show, where we bring on women in business once a month to talk about their businesses, and then also ways that or things that they struggle with or are involved in as far as being women in business, just to be advocates for other women in business. If you want to check out more about what Powerful Women of the Gulf Coast does, go to our website, PowerfulWomenGulfCoast.com, or go to our Facebook page, Powerful Women of the Gulf Coast. You can come to our monthly networking meetings, which are at the Gulf Coast Kids House, and uh, meet with the Gulf Coast Kids House representatives there as well, or come check out any other of our activities, including our Power Up classes. And if you missed, you've already missed our classes on networking, but... The next class will be on Tuesday, and it's actually on networking after. So what do you do with all those business cards that you've already accumulated from your networking event? How do you integrate them into your pipeline and follow up with all these great connections that you made? So if you want to tune into that as well, look us up on our website. Again, it's PowerfulWomenGulfCoast.com, and we look forward to hearing from everybody in a month. Thank you so much. (laughs) 